Hey, pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your living word that though it is ancient, still speaks to us today. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in that. Um, Spirit of the living God, fall on us. Open this word to us. Help us to see how it can be life-giving for us. I pray, Lord, uh, even though we might hear hard things, um, that you wouldn't let us shut down, but that you would help us to receive good news. Open our minds, open our hearts, change our wills, transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In the summer of 1994, July to be exact, I was a 19-year-old recruit in U.S. Coast Guard basic training, Cape May, New Jersey. In my company, Oscar Company, there was roughly 30 of us that, uh, that joined from all over the United States. We would live together, learn together, work out together. For eight weeks, we would basically be family. There were people from New York City and Kansas and Louisiana, uh, Florida, California, even a guy from St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. It was this crazy mixture of people. There were men and women, Caucasians, African-Americans, Pacific Islanders, Asians, Latinos, and mutts like me. We're funny-looking group when you put us all together of different backgrounds, complexions, hair lengths, and life experiences. And somehow, in eight weeks, the Coast Guard was going to either weed us out and force us to quit, which some did, or turn us into men and women who were ready to then go learn how to contribute in the field. But if the Coast Guard was going to teach us what it takes to be ready to serve, they first had to take away all of the distractions that we came with. They were going to turn us into a team, and they had to take away our kind of crutches in order to do that. So the first night, they take away all your physical possessions. Uh, no phone. Well, we didn't have cell phones back then. That's how long ago it was. But uh, today, you can't have cell phones. Um, no music. Walkman, yes, I had a Walkman. Uh, no civilian clothing. They take all that stuff away, everything that's like extra and superfluous, and then they take away your hair. Well, the girls got to keep their hair to here, but we had to get our head shaved. Before we could learn how to be a team, we had to kind of be brought down to a starting place. And no matter who you were before you got to basic training, it didn't really matter anymore. You were all just a recruit. There's a great story about a man who was successful in business. He quickly rose the ladder to achieve all the things that he thought you were supposed to achieve, like money and power and success, and yet he found himself empty. So he left it all, and he went to Asia, and he found a great kung fu master that he wanted to learn from. He wanted to start training right away. He had so many questions, so many things specifically that he wanted to learn. And finally, when he met the master, when he got audience with the master, he sat down. The master began pouring tea into his cup, and the cup begins to overflow. And the master just keeps on pouring the tea, and it's overflowing and streaming, steaming. Streams are cascading off of the table and onto the floor. And the man cried, Master, my cup's already full. Precisely, said the master. You've come to me already full of your own ideas, your own seeing of the world, your own agenda. How can you receive my teaching when you are already so full of yourself? Now, what do kung fu masters in boot camp have to do with anything? 
Well, my warped mind, of course, they make me think of the Ten Commandments, don't they make you? Of course. Think about it. The gracious God of the universe is so faithful to his promises that he rescues the Israelites out of slavery, he delivers them from Egypt, and he wants to bring them into the promised land. But he doesn't just save them for themselves. This is a theme we've been talking about for a couple of years now as we've uh, looked at Exodus last fall as well. He saves Israel so that they can be his agents, his reflections, his hands and his feet in the world. He wants to take the Israelites and so bless them that the other nations will say, wow, look at them. Look how they treat each other. Look at how well their society functions. Look at how generous they are with their abundance. They must have the most amazing God ever. Let's go find out. Let's go get to know the God who is behind this amazing Israel. But the reality is that the Israelites had been living in Egypt for nearly 400 years. They had picked up Egyptian ways of seeing the world and Egyptian ways of thinking and to various degrees, Egyptian ways of thinking about God or gods. Not only that, but they were about to go into the land of Canaan where they would encounter a people who... Some of them sacrificed children as part of their worship, a land where people served many gods, and a land in which human thriving was only expected for the 1% of the male population. In order to get ready to be a missionary people in a land like that, God sent the Israelites to boot camp in the wilderness. He had to strip away their crutches so that they were forced to rely not on their Egyptian slave masters, or on their ways of being religious before, but they had to learn how to rely on God. They had to go through detox from the world so that they could know God and His ways. Ways that would lead to human thriving for all of them, not just the men and not just certain families, but all of them. So to help them detox, God gave them the law. And the summary of that law, the tip of the iceberg of that law, is what we call the Ten Commandments. In a detox setting, the laws are not an end unto themselves. They're intended to just give you a baseline, but they also point to something greater, something beyond themselves. See, in boot camp, going back to that scene, the the point isn't to have all the same haircut and to march in formation for the rest of your career. The point is to learn how to follow orders and to work together. But once you graduate, you're more free to work within those boundaries, to do the work you're trained to do. Your past experience, your talents, your personality, all are supposed to come out later on as long as you can help the team and not put yourself over the team. In a similar way, the Ten Commandments are laws that just simply stop human destruction, and yet they point to something greater. So two weeks ago, for example, we looked at the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. And in the world that the Israelites were in at that time, murder was really common. Um, Family rivalries and tribal conflicts would often lead to escalating cycles of violence. You kill my brother, I kill two of your brothers. Uh, you steal my sheep, I come and I steal your lives. You know, it, it just escalating, get worse and worse and worse and worse. So from that starting point, to stop murdering was a huge step, like revolutionary for the Israelites. But is that all that God has to say about human relationships, like just don't kill each other? No, of course not. 
Not even close. And as we see in the teachings of Jesus, with, uh, with his help, you and I, the world, we're called to reconciliation, to do away with besetting anger and holding grudges against each other. We're to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. The law of just don't murder is a stopgap to help prepare us for a new way of living, the Jesus way. This evening, we're going to focus on the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. As we've been walking through the commandments, I've repeatedly said I want to talk about three things when we talk about these commandments. I want to talk about why God would give this law. Like, he has a top ten list, apparently. Why did these ten things make it? The second thing is I want to talk about how this law is still relevant today. Otherwise, why are we preaching on this stuff? And thirdly, I want to talk about how each law points beyond itself to Jesus, to the gospel. So why does a prohibition against adultery make the top 10 list for God's commands? I don't really know. I mean, he didn't tell me why, but uh, you can speculate when you consider this. That God was calling a people out of bondage for the purpose of healthy human thriving. And sharing that healthy, healthy human thriving way of life with the rest of the world. That's God's purpose for delivering Israel. Let me emphasize that God is calling out a people. He's calling out a people to reflect his goodness in the world. It's not just about a person. It's not just about you and me. It's about a community. And communities are made up of families. And healthy families are made up of marriages. And healthy married people do not commit adultery. Adultery destroys trust between people. In adultery, the offender takes the intimate sexual relationship that's designed for marriage, they betray their spouse, and share that relationship of intimacy with another person. The broken trust destroys marriages and families and children and communities. One of the things this commandment does is it takes the private life, what people do in the bedroom, and it makes it a matter of public health. Our culture talks a lot about sex, and it talks about it as in one this weird contradiction of ways. It talks about it publicly on television shows and movies and talk shows and all kinds of things and the way we sell products, and yet we're really weirded out by it. Like, it's a private thing, like what you do in your bedroom should stay in your bedroom, what you do in Vegas should stay in Vegas, and all this kind of stuff. I've heard it said that the church is prudish when it comes to physical intimacy, and some expressions of the church, that's true, but God isn't prudish, and neither is the Bible. My goodness, have you ever read the Song of Songs and tried to study it? That's erotic, like, okay. Uh, The Bible agrees that sex is personal, but it's not private, okay? Instead, what we see is a God who understands that fidelity the ability to stay loyal to our commandment, or, I'm sorry, fidelity is the ability to stay loyal to our commitments and those who we're committed to, okay? So you're going to see that word again, fidelity, and uh, I know some of our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders are here. If you're taking notes on this, fidelity is the ability to stay loyal to your commitments and to stay loyal to those people you're committed to. We have a God who apparently thinks that fidelity 
is one of the keys to fullness of life. Throughout the scriptures, adultery is used to describe Israel when they break covenant with God. He describes Israel as a wayward bride, and he describes his his own heartache as one who has been betrayed by an intimate lover, by a spouse when Israel breaks the covenant. So adultery in the Ten Commandments refers to married people, people who have, been, uh, have made a commitment to each other, people who have taken vows before God. And adultery, as we have seen, is a breaking of those vows, and it's something that has destructive consequences. So in some sense, the decision to remain faithful to your marriage covenant is like exercising your commitment muscle. It, it trains you also for being committed to God. And in God's eyes, when we break covenant with the spouse, then we break covenant with God himself. The two are intertwined. Now, strictly speaking, in the Ten Commandments, this command, number seven, is adultery is prohibited um, because it breaks a commandment with God. And strictly speaking, it is the breaking of a covenant between a married, uh, married people. But is this law still relevant today? I mean, man, this is old. After all, television shows and movies and songs and talk shows and literature, in all of those areas, adultery is almost commonplace, like it's so normal. Have you noticed that? Like your average shit, uh, did I say that? Sitcom. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, it's like commonplace where there's infidelity all over the place. Well, I kind of have three things to say about the relevancy of this commandment. First, it will never matter that everybody else is doing it. That will never be a strong defense before God. It just won't. Like, remember the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That includes the God of popular opinion and the goddess of culture. It includes the godlessness of our age. Like, it just doesn't matter if everybody else is doing it or all the shows say it's normal. Second, you have to remember that the Ten Commandments are for the people of God, the people God made a covenant with. Today, that includes those of us who say we follow Jesus, who have been rescued by Jesus, who follow him as his disciples. So while adultery is horrible and it destroys lives, it shouldn't be surprising at all that it happens frequently, especially among people who have not been redeemed by Jesus. In an increasingly non-Christian culture, fidelity in marriage should be a mark of Jesus' people. But we shouldn't be surprised when it happens all over the place. This commandment, then, isn't intended for the general public in terms of a standard people are held to by God. Um, Frankly, without Jesus, people have bigger problems than just fidelity in marriage. Like, there's bigger problems out there without Jesus. So this, this commandment is relevant for the people of God. Now, it's a great idea for everybody but if, you've, if you run across people in the world or Hollywood or whatever television show you watch and you're like, that's breaking the Ten Commandments. Well, have the, has that person made a commitment to Jesus or to God? If not, then why would they follow it? The third thing I have to say about whether this commandment against adultery is still relevant comes from a pastoral place. When people commit adultery, there is the initial destruction of trust and then there's the fallout. As a pastor, I have too frequently sat across from people 
who have ripped their marriages apart, seen families ripped apart, seen churches ripped apart because of factions as people take sides. Children, I have seen, lose their faith in faith. Like, if I can't trust them, who can I trust at all? There are no winners to adultery. And the sickness spreads to the point where the ability to trust other people and to have faith at all can get chipped away. The natural inclination, then, for someone who suffered through this can be skepticism and, worse yet, cynicism. You shall not commit adultery is extremely relevant today. Yeah, you might be thinking, well, I'm not married or I'm 10. How can this be relevant to me? I'm glad you asked. I heard somebody say it. I heard you think it. I started this evening by making some loose connections between boot camp and a little kung fu and some Exodus wanderings. Uh, Let's talk about boot camp again. Boot camp is a temporary experience. It's simpler than real life in the Coast Guard. You practice life-saving techniques, but like in a pool. In the real world, it's usually like super cold and dark and windy because people only need rescued when it's crappy out. And in boot camp, you practice under zero stress making all these different knots, but you're supposed to use those knots to tow vessels in distress or when things are messed up, you tie them to secure rigging and all this kind of stuff. So it's simple in boot camp, It's to learn the basics so then you can go to more complexity and actually use those skills to do real stuff that help people. In a similar way, the Ten Commandments take a bunch of people who have known life only as slaves in Egypt, and it teaches them the basics of how to relate to God and the basics of how to relate to other people without doing further damage. But then the Ten Commandments, uh, they're just a simple expression of, of a much deeper heart of God. They're the simplified examples of the ethics of God. They're there to get people ready to thrive in the new world, which we would call the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus. And in the case of adultery, Jesus came and revealed the heart of God behind that law. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit adultery. (laughs) But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman the intent to lust after her, has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus shows us what we already know deep down, that our hearts are corrupted. It is the seed of your heart where any good word or good deed or good intention comes out of, and it is the seat of our hearts where our evil thoughts and our evil deeds and our evil actions come out of. Listen, back in the days of the Exodus when the Ten Commandments were given, there's plenty of societies around the Israelites who had made adultery illegal. Like, it was a bad thing. People hated it. And in the days of Jesus, the Roman Emperor Augustus made adultery illegal in certain instances. And in many societies today, there's laws against adultery. And in some places, it's like the death penalty still for adultery. But it doesn't stop the problem. These laws are there to protect men, usually, in those cultures, not women. And they're there to protect family names and legacies, not families. And all of these laws aim to motivate obedience from a place of fear. And that never works. 
Whereas God's law is different. Yeah, there's consequences, but they're only there to get your attention. The real consequence from God's perspective is the ruining of the human soul. Adultery kills the soul and it kills communities. And when that community is the new people of God, well, the stakes are pretty high. God takes that really serious. Now, I've preached Jesus' words out of Matthew 5 uh, on, on adultery and lust in a previous sermon in my Matthew series. And if you're just like, I need a refresher on that, or I want to go deeper, or how come he's not talking about cutting off arms and plucking out eyes? It's all there. Like, go online. We don't have time right now for the purpose of this evening. I want to bring our attention to Jesus' words because what they do for us is they leave no rock unturned. They mention men looking at women with lust, primarily because of the time period and the dominant offenders, but as the gospel is played out in the early church, and we see in the writings of Paul uh, and the church fathers and mothers, and then up to today, we realize that this word applies to every one of us. Women lust, just like men. Women get addicted to sexual content on the internet, just like men. Lust is an equal opportunity sin. Yay, we're all equal. Doesn't that feel great? It needs to be said that lust is not attraction. And for all of you out there who just have a attraction things going on especially i'm talking to my boys who are hitting puberty and stuff like that that's not what this is talking about like if you're attracted to uh, the opposite sex you are probably really healthy um, the word here in the greek should be translated all those who look at a woman or we could say a man with the intent of lusting of gaining control over, of using them for your own purposes. That's what the sin here is. Um, otherwise, you'd have to walk around like with zero sensory perception. Um, lust is a sin because it dehumanizes people. It's a decision past walking down the street and like, oh, that person's cute, to whoa, and just like fantasizing and going over it again and again and again. Lust dehumanizes people. It turns the object of lust into an object, not a person anymore. And it dehumanizes the one doing the lusting as well. When we lust after other people, we begin to approach the world as a predator, as we are the predator and everyone else is a mark or a, uh, a potential person to give me pleasure. They're no longer a son or daughter of the living God with a real personality, with real joys and sorrows and a life. The lines blur between looking at people as image bearers and seeing them instead of merely objects of our pleasure. In Jesus' uh, words on anger, um, it made us all squirm because, you know, you come in thinking, thou shalt not murder, and you're like, yeah, I haven't done that. It's not a big deal. Oh, but the anger thing, that's rough. Well, the same with this, like, hey, I haven't committed adultery, but this is an ongoing challenge. And Probably most of us, if we're honest with this one, it makes us squirm a little bit. Um, we should feel a little bit convicted, and I hope and I pray it does bring holy conviction where that is needed. We need to sit with the uncomfortable reality that for most of us, our hearts are corrupted and lean towards lust, like it usually for most of us takes effort to not lust. But that's not very good news. And that's why the message doesn't end here. And that's why the Bible doesn't end here. And that's why Jesus doesn't end here. 
the good news about this commandment is that it points to Jesus. Earlier in the service, Ellen read from John chapter 8, and John tells the story of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, caught in the act of adultery in first century Palestine. Like, you've heard things I've said about first century Palestine. Like, can you imagine? Not just hearsay, not just I heard this happen, but caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders dragged this woman out of wherever she was doing this. And of course, notice there's no man present. Drags this woman into the temple where Jesus is doing some teaching. According to Jewish law, she should be, or could be at least, stoned to death. And the religious leaders want to use her. They don't even care so much about the sin. This is what drives me crazy. They want to use this woman to test Jesus to see if he's orthodox, to see if he follows the rules like they think he ought to follow the rules, to see if he really is an upholder, a rabbi that upholds the law of God. And they didn't realize, of course, that the one they were testing was God incarnate. Irony, that's supposed to be crazy for the reader, right? Um, And when this woman, caught in the act of breaking God's seventh commandment, was brought in and brought right before God himself, what did God do? What did Jesus do? Two things. This is simplifying, right? But he, he did two things. He showed her grace. And then he showed her a new way of life. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, the first thing that he really teaches is, hey, I'm, I've come to set captives free, to proclaim the good news to the poor and to the oppressed and to the fatherless and to the widows. He's come to preach good news to this adulterous woman caught in the act of adultery in first century Palestine. And he, he's come to set men free who are trapped in poisoned ways of thinking. And he's come to declare freedom to those slaves of sexual addiction. And he's come to proclaim healing to those victims of the sins of other people, those who have been on the receiving end of this systemic disease. Jesus saves, Jesus rescues, Jesus sets free. That's his whole deal. Jesus does all of this through the work on the cross, which grants forgiveness to all who repent of their sin. Jesus does the freeing work through the power of his word and through prayer and through Christian community. Jesus does his freeing work through healers, like counselors and therapists and pastors and support groups, and oftentimes a team of those people, because nobody Hardly anyone I know has ever broken these chains alone. Jesus died to set us free, and if you're trapped, you can be free. For some, you need to hear, it's not too late. If you need to hear, it's not too late, it's not too late. And for some, you need to hear, you can't come back too often. Yeah, I've tried that before. Will he receive me again? You can't come back too often. It's not too late. You can't come back too often. The one who died on a cross, like that's pretty extreme, right? I don't think he's going to say, oh, you know, up to 20 times you can come back, but you failed the 21st time. I don't want to talk to you anymore. The man died for you. (laughs) You can't come back too often, and it's never too late. And I didn't even write this down, but you're never too far gone. 
The second thing Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery after he forgave her is go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. I wish he had told a little more about how to do that. (laughs) Or told her what therapist to see or what, you know, it's Jesus. Maybe he just, that would be pretty awesome. For those of you who struggle with this, you know it's not just like that. But that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. Go and sin no more. Go and enter the new life I have given you. You know, sometimes we get so focused on either the sin or the forgiveness of sin and what Dallas Willard calls sin management. Like we make the Christian life about not sinning and we forget that Jesus never just talked about not sinning. In fact, he rarely talked about it. What did he talk about? LL knows what he talked about. The kingdom, she, she, she brought this up the other day. It was awesome, revelation. The kingdom, he's always talking about the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? Is a, is a vision of what life can be like when we follow Jesus. Jesus isn't all obsessed with, hey, stop doing stuff. Hey, stop sinning. He's about, look at the life you could have. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not just about don't do stuff. It's about, look, how would it be to be free of anger? That's the vision. How would it be free to be able to interact with people that you're attracted to and just look in their eyes and, and want to know their hearts and not be obsessed with the other stuff? That's what he's talking about. How would you like to be someone who is so honest, so uh, without guile, so comfortable in your own skin that you didn't have to make stuff up or to say I promise or to tell half-truths? You could just be you. That's what the Sermon on the Mount points us to. It's about a vision for new life. And so Jesus says, go and sin no more, because he's talking about what life can be like. That's good news. Go and enter new life. I have given it to you. Be new because of me. Go and live rightly related. Go and live in faithfulness. Go and practice fidelity, truthfulness, and loyalty. Not just in physical relationships, but in friendships. And I know uh, some of our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders are here among us, and you guys have sat really well through all of this sex talk stuff, but this also can apply, you know, fidelity, faithfulness, loyalty, and relationships. Think about your friends at school or at church. What, what would it look like to be totally truthful with them, to never say anything bad behind their back? Or how about, a, you know, if you have siblings... Oh, man, sometimes they can be the worst, like drive you crazy, but what would it look like to, to stand up for your siblings to when you're in a public place and you want to just get away from the little brother or sister to say, you know what? I want to make sure that their feelings come first too. What would faithfulness there look like? Go, be full of fidelity and business practices. Be an agent of Jesus in the marketplace, known for your integrity, known for your kindness, known for your wisdom, known for being a really good business person. You don't have to like have either or, but there's the way to bring the two together to where you're respected for more than just your bottom line, but you're respected because of who you are in the community. Like Nicole, who just made top seven women under 40 in Whatcom County. Men and women! Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that. And students, whether you're young or old, what look like to have fidelity when you're taking that test and there's ways to work around it or on your sports teams. 
being up front. In all our relationships, the call here is to fidelity. Jesus is faithful to us. He was faithful unto death, and he's looking, um, he's faithful to bring us new life. And the call here then is to receive it. (laughs) Receive it. You're not too far gone. You can't come back too many times. Lord, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you that all of this that we've talked about is in your word. It is in not only just words about you, but it's in the narrative of your life. And you've actually done the things to prove who you are. You actually became incarnate. You actually gave yourself in death for us. You actually rose from the grave and sent us your spirit. You were actually gracious with this woman who was caught in the act and brought into the holy place, into the temple of God. And you forgave her. Lord, help us to receive your forgiveness where it's needed today. And help us to resolve to be new people in the power of your spirit. I pray for each one here, Lord, that you would capture our hearts and our imaginations with what life can look like. With what life can look like in your spirit. Amen.